Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews. We're back in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 to 18. Make sure I'm not blocking it. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every, high, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's all uh, pray together before uh, we hear from the Lord. God, we, uh, we pray, God, for open eyes and open ears. Uh, that what we do at this time is not simply an intellectual activity where we come and learn, but uh, it is really a time where, uh, through your word, through your scripture, uh, you desire to speak to your people. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to us. You would speak to us corporately. You would speak to us uh, individually. And you would help us to see, ultimately, the beauty of what Christ has done upon the cross that our hearts would be renewed, that we would be encouraged, that we would, um, if we have lost hope, that we would regain hope once again, hope in the right things, hope in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So help us to hear, help us to see, help us to know, help us to um, respond with delight as we hear from you today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, the summer is a little bit... Um, I would say rhythm breaking uh, because so many people are in and out and you can even just tell uh, with like the worship team and uh, you know some people I feel like I have not seen for many <laughs> weeks and myself I was not here for three out of the last four Sundays but uh, I will be here now consistently and so I thought we would be it would be a good idea to get back to the series that we were on about a month ago through the book of Hebrews that we're calling Jesus is Better. And just by way of reminder, since it's been, since it's been so long since we've been uh, through this series, let me remind you why we are looking at this book and what this book is about. 
The book of Hebrews is written to a community that is discouraged because they're experiencing a lot of trials and a lot of hardship. They've been persecuted for their faith. And as a result, some people are tempted to fall away from their faith. Now, I think we all know somebody in our lives who has decided not to follow Jesus anymore. And I think most of us have probably gone through seasons where maybe we contemplated or considered it and we said, maybe it's not worth following Jesus anymore. And whenever we go through that, or whenever somebody goes through that, what happens is we need encouragement, right? We need encouragement to persevere. How does the book of Hebrews try to encourage this community to persevere? And the answer is actually pretty simple. The author tries to encourage this community very simply by saying this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's a better word, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better mediator, a mediator of of a better covenant, and so forth. And unless you have that conviction that Jesus indeed is better, I think what's going to happen is the world is going to end up overcoming us, overtaking us. Any obstacle from inconvenience to the other extreme to persecution is going to hinder our faith if we do not believe that Jesus is indeed better. But you see, if Jesus is our supreme treasure, if he is our supreme delight, then as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ will compel us, or a stronger translation would be the the love of Christ will actually take control over us. Now, this passage that we're looking at today uh, is actually the continuation of uh, chapter 9 that we saw a couple weeks ago. But the author starts by talking about the law, or what Jewish people would call the Torah. According to verse 1, it says, The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And it's a very vivid picture in terms of understanding how the Hebrew Scriptures or what we call the Old Testament, how it relates to things of the New Testament and after Jesus came. And basically what it says is things under the old are like a shadow. Now shadows can give you very useful information. Uh, but it doesn't tell the entire story. I, I've spent a lot of time in the sun this summer. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were in California, and we went to Disneyland. And when you go to Disneyland, uh, the L.A. sun gets extremely hot in the middle of the day. And so uh, around 2 o'clock or so, uh, all the families are looking for, like, the shadows to huddle under because the sun is so strong. And what I would try to do to my kids, because I don't want them to be exposed to too much sun, <laughs> is uh, I would try to, like, block the sun from there and, like, stand over them so they wouldn't get uh, sunburn or the sun wouldn't, you know, hurt their skin and things like that. And, you know, when I, when I see my shadow, there are a couple things that you can see very clearly, right? You can say... You can see that uh, I was a person. You could see that I had my hands on my hips. You could even tell that I was wearing a T-shirt. But as far as shadows go, that's the extent of what you can see. You couldn't see the color of the T-shirt I was wearing, that I was wearing a blue T-shirt. You couldn't see that uh, I probably needed to shave. You couldn't see that my hair was black. That is what the author is saying about the law. It's not that the law was bad, but the law was simply just a shadow, a shadow of the good things to come. If you talk to a devout Jewish person, their understanding of Christianity is uh, really interesting because they'll say, oh, Christianity, it's just kind of like an add-on to Judaism. Uh, You have the Jewish God, you have the Jewish scriptures, you have the Jewish faith as the foundation, and what Christians do is they add on Jesus, and boom, you get Christianity. But from the perspective of the New Testament, that's not exactly how it understands uh, the Old Covenant, and that's not how it understands the person and the role of Jesus. Jesus is not simply an add-on. Rather, it's more like the Jewish law was good, but it was just a shadow, which reveals a lot of good things. But when Jesus comes, what he does is he makes the picture clear. 
He brings to fruition the true realities, the true form of these realities. So no longer are you just looking at the shadow, but you see the true form that is causing that shadow. And therefore, what we can conclude is we can say the law is good, but at the same time, it's insufficient. It's insufficient. In the same way shadows are insufficient to know the true form of something, the law is insufficient to know the true form of certain kinds of spiritual realities. So today, we're going to look at why the law is insufficient, why the true form of these realities is better, and what these realities ultimately mean for you and me. So why is the law insufficient? And the author is using this sacrificial system that was employed in the Old Testament to show us why the law is insufficient. And first he says this, that sacrifices are insufficient because they had to be offered year-round. They had to be repeated over and over and over again. Second, these sacrifices could never sanctify us. They could never make us perfect. They could never make us holy and acceptable to God. And third and finally, these sacrifices ultimately could not take away sin. Now, when we looked at chapter 9 uh, about a month ago, we talked about the purpose behind blood sacrifices, so I'm not going to get into it here. But I do want us to consider why this system of sacrifice would have been so attractive. You see, in this community, this is a community of Jewish believers. When they're falling away, they're not falling away from faith and spirituality entirely. What they're falling away means is they are reverting back to their old ways of Judaism. Now, why would they want to do that? What is so attractive about a system of law? You know, if you look at a lot of the religions of the world, I think they are very much based upon a system of law, right? You set forth a a certain standard or a certain set of laws or norms, and if you can accomplish those things and do those things, then you're considered to be a good and worthy person before God, I think Judaism is like that. I think Islam is like that. I think uh, certain traditions in Christianity are even like that. But guess what? I even think secular people operate that way too. Everyone's laws may be a little bit different and there might be different values, but people are drawn to living according to that legalistic structure. Why? Why? There's this Russian novelist named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, he gave this commencement speech that I I came across in an article at Harvard in 1978. And uh, I think it's a really brilliant speech, and it's a little bit long, but I want to read a portion of what he says in its entirety. This is what he says. He says, Western society has given itself the organization best suited to its purposes based, I would say, on the letter of the law. Any conflict is solved according to the letter of the law, and this is considered to be the supreme solution. If one is right from a legal point of view, nothing more is required. Nobody may mention that one could still not be entirely right and urge self-restraint, a willingness to renounce such legal rights, sacrifice, and selfless risk. It would sound simply absurd. One almost never sees voluntary self-restraint. Everybody operates at the extreme limit of those legal frames. An oil company is legally blameless when it purchases an invention of a new type of energy in order to prevent its use. A food product manufacturer is legally blameless when he poisons his produce to make it last longer. After all, people are free not to buy it. I have spent all my life under a communist regime, and I will tell you that a society without any objective legal scale is a terrible one indeed. But a society with no other scale but the legal one is not quite worthy of man either. A society which is based on the letter of the law and never reaches any higher is taking very scarce advantage of the high level of human possibilities. The letter of the law is too cold and formal to have beneficial influence on society. Whenever the tissue of life is woven of legalistic relations, 
There is an atmosphere of moral mediocrity, paralyzing man's noblest impulses, and it will simply it will be simply impossible to stand through the trials of this threatening century with only the support of a legalistic structure. Uh, big chunk there. What is he saying ultimately? He's saying this. When you operate and live according to a system of law alone, when you follow a legalistic structure, what that ends up doing is that lowers the ceiling of what is expected of you. All you have to do is that which you are required to do, which ends up creating a society where people then will settle for moral mediocrity, is what he says. And you see, that can be attractive to some people because as long as you can do the bare minimum, then you can claim to be a good moral person. Isn't that why most people believe, in our society at least, that they're ultimately good? I think if you ask the majority of people, uh, right, if you need a savior to save you, one of the obstacles is, why do I need a savior? I'm a good person. And if the standard is, I'm not a criminal. I haven't broken the law. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't hurt anybody. Then, of course, you can claim to be good. But you see, that's a very low ceiling to have. You know, similarly, we can probably turn Christianity into a system of law as well. And we can say, you know, if you think Christianity means, well, I have to go to church every Sunday. Uh, I have to tithe. I have to read uh, three chapters of the Bible every day. And I have to pray before every meal. Um, And if you say that's what Christianity is about, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's actually not super hard to accomplish. Now, I know many of us probably struggle with doing some of those things, but if that's all you were required to do, and if that's all Christianity was, then you can claim to be a good Christian, right? You can claim to be a good Christian and feel pretty good about yourself. But here's the problem with that way of thinking, with a system of law, with a legalistic structure. It places a limitation on love. There's a limitation on love. You see, what a system of grace does is this. A system of grace says there is actually no limit in which you can give, in which you can be generous, in which you can love, in which you can sacrifice. There's no limit. Why is there no limit? Because you have been given grace. And if that grace is true, if what you have received is true, and it's amazing, there is a debt that you cannot pay And because you cannot pay it, there is no limitation to what you ought to give. Uh, There's a story that I've been very touched by that I've said before uh, that took place on 9-11 about a man in a red bandana. I think books and uh, documentaries have been made about this story. But this man was credited with saving at least 10 people from uh, one of the towers on 9-11 before the tower fell and he ultimately lost his life. And you kind of imagine being one of those 10 people that he helped to save knowing that you are alive uh, because of this man who ran up into a a burning building and down and kept doing that over and over to help people and that you are alive because this man uh, did that, but as a result, this man ended up dying. How how would you feel about that? You know, you you see his parents, you see his family, you see what kind of response are you going to have towards them? You know, you're going to say, man, I can't repay the debt that your son paid, right, with his life, but I'm going to try. I want to do anything I can to, to show you my gratitude of how much I really appreciate what your son did for me. And when we respond in that way, that's a system of grace. There is no limitation anymore, right, 
on love, on what you can give, on generosity, on how much you can sacrifice. And not only that, you do it with joy and with delight, and you feel like it's your honor and your privilege to give of yourself in that way. That, friends, is Christianity. That's the Christian gospel. And once you really understand the magnitude of what uh, Jesus Christ did and the amazing grace that you have given, our response is going to be like that, is to, be, to pay a debt that we cannot pay. And that's why it's a little bit intimidating, right? If you were supposed to do just five things and then you could be considered a, uh, a good Christian, you just check those things off, that's a lot easier to do because the, uh, the bar is finite, But under a system of grace, if Jesus Christ really died for you, if he really died for you and gave you a life and salvation that you truly do not deserve, what can you possibly do to repay him? Nothing, right? So there's a limitlessness to a system of grace. Now, that doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is good. But as I said before, it's insufficient. It can't perfect us. It can't make us into generous people. It can't make us into loving people. It can't make us into sacrificial people. And most importantly, it cannot take away our sins. A Jewish person could make all the animal sacrifices required of the law and still carry that burden of sin. And those sacrifices require uh, repetition after repetition after repetition, as it says in verse 11. And those offerings will still never be enough to take away sins. And so you wonder, why would God then institute a legal system of sacrifice if in the final analysis it's not good enough, if it's insufficient? After all, the Old Testament is God's word, right? God's law. Why would he institute this thing if it could not take away sin? And the answer is this, to point to something better, to point to something that ultimately would. It's a shadow, right? It's a shadow of that which is to come. It's pointing to a greater reality. What is this greater reality and why is it better? You find it in several places in the passage, but let's focus in on verses 12 to 14, which says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus and his work on the cross is that greater reality. The blood sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament were offered, but it was a shadow of the ultimate blood sacrifice that would be offered on the cross in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And there are a few reasons here mentioned regarding why Jesus' offering is that much better, why it leads to a greater reality. First, Jesus' offering of his body was a single sacrifice once for all. No repetition was required. Once for all, a one-time event dealt with sin once for all. Now, if you don't understand how amazing that is and the reality, the amazing reality of that, I want you to think about something. Think about something that needs to be repaired over and over and over again and how frustrating it gets. Because uh, this is New York, let me use an example. The New York subway system, right? Old system, which means it always needs to be fixed. Now, there's always uh, signal problems. There's always equipment problems. Every time it rains, right, there's delays. Uh, anytime, every time <coughs> the weather is bad, uh, you know, my, my wife was telling me that a train was uh, stuck for 90 minutes in, like, the heat wave, which I missed out on, but the heat wave. And uh, uh, was anybody in that? No? Okay, good. Now, the, the, the New York subway system, it's a complicated problem to fix, right? It's not a simple solution. You know, the system is big. It's old. 
there's always this decision you have to make between do I make this minor temporary fix and cause less disruption or do I make this major repair and shut down the entire subway line for a long period of time and fix it once and for all? Right? Isn't that the always attention? Uh, that's what happened with the L train. Uh, initially, they were just going to shut it down completely. And then what they decided to do is go back on that and just shut it down part time. Now, uh, what if there was a solution that would fix all the problems of the New, Jer- uh, the New York subway system once and for all? Wouldn't that be amazing? No more uh, temporary fixes, no more uh, fixing it over and over again, but once and for all, it is completely fixed. That's what Jesus does with the system of the Old Testament, with the system under the Old Covenant. He doesn't make these little fixes. You know, under the Old Covenant, it's just making these little temporary fixes, but when Jesus comes, what he does is he renovates the entire thing. (laughs) He renovates the entire thing, and therefore, through his offering of himself, he gives a solution to sin, once and for all. And that solution to sin leads to a second greater reality. According to verse 14, it says this, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, the grammar in the sentence is actually um, a little bit complex, and it creates this theological tension that I don't think we're supposed to resolve. Uh, On the one hand, it says the work of Jesus has already perfected us. And the kind of perfection that it's talking about here is not moral perfection, but the sense of the Greek word is more about completion, uh, being made whole. Now, I don't have time to go into it now, but uh, I think a lot of our internal issues that we have is probably in the fact that we don't feel complete, that we don't feel like we're whole. Uh, We feel fractured. We feel like we need something external in order to make our lives feel complete and fulfilled. We need a relationship. We need a marriage. We need kids. We need a certain level of career success. We need a certain amount of money in our finances. We need a certain lifestyle or a certain level of comfort, whatever it might be. All of those things that we are pursuing, I think we pursue because deep in our hearts, we feel incomplete. We feel like there's something missing, right? What Jesus says here, what it says here in terms of what Jesus does, by this single offering, when Jesus died upon the cross, he perfected us for all time. He completed us. He fulfilled. We are now filled. We are no longer a fractured people. We are no longer an incomplete people. He perfects us and completes us and makes us whole in a way that we cannot do on our own. And that's the objective reality of the gospel. That's the objective reality of what Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes. But in this verse, there's also this other tension where it recognizes the process of being sanctified, this process of growth, the progress that we make. Now, the word sanctified uh, simply means to be made holy or to be set apart. And so on the one hand, Jesus' work perfects us. It completes us. It completely sanctifies us. But on the other hand, it's a process. It's progressive. Uh, In other words, the subjective reality of what is objectively true doesn't always correspond in our lives, right? Uh, You know, my wife and I, We were friends at first before we started dating. Uh, So I think we were friends for maybe two years, and we were really good friends. And therefore, our relationship was that of a friendship. We uh, we busted on each other, and uh, you know we talked, and there was there was no romance. In fact, in the beginning, uh, we had no romantic interest in one another. Uh, But eventually, romantic interest grew, and uh, after a a couple years of friendship, we started dating. And when we first started dating, uh, a couple people around us said. Uh, you guys don't seem like a couple. <laughs> they said, you guys still feel like friends. 
And I, I knew what they meant because I didn't feel like we were a couple, like I, we, we kept relating to each other as like friends too. And we're like busting on each other. And, uh, you know, that boyfriend, girlfriend dynamic of a relationship kind of took a while to transition into, right? Objectively, our relationship was defined in that way in romantic terms. But subjectively, it was a process to live into that reality, right? One of the challenges that we may have when it comes to our faith is we might very well understand the objective reality of what the work of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, but our struggle is probably this, that subjectively, we struggle to live into that greater reality. That means we still have our insecurities and our anxieties that we struggle with. That means we still have the lusts of the flesh and the things of the world that we pursue. That means we still value the things of the world over and against the things of the kingdom. But you know what it also means? It means this, that we are prone to live within a system of law. And when we envision, uh, when we do what we envision a good person or a good Christian should do, we feel righteous. And conversely, when we fail to do that which we think we ought to be doing, we feel condemned. And we kind of go through this roller coaster of feeling righteous and self-righteous and then feeling condemned when we fail. But here's what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit bears witness through the Hebrew Scriptures and says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, what does it mean that the law will be on our hearts? It means this, that obedience to God and God's law is no longer a matter of externalities. It's no longer a matter of gaining righteousness. It's no longer a matter of uh, trying to do what's right so that we can claim we are good people. But when he says, I will put their laws on their hearts, it's talking about an internal transformation that will take place. That we will do what God commands us to do because we simply want to please the one. We delight in the one who gave us salvation through his death upon a cross. That we delight in pleasing our Father up in heaven. That we delight in doing that which will ultimately give greater glory and honor to the one whom we worship. And that's different than doing something because it is simply the right thing to do. But that comes from a deep transformation of the heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit promises, that God will write his law upon our hearts. Now, let me end with this. You know, I just got back from our prayer march on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, some some of the people uh, in our church are still there in Turkey, as I mentioned before. And, you know, one of the, this is actually, has been a very extremely busy month uh, for me personally and for my family. Uh, I've been away from home like three out of the last four weeks because uh, I was in California for two weeks for school and uh, family vacation. Uh, I was home for a week and then, right, went off to to Greece. And I was kind of mulling over, should I go on this prayer march? Uh, We're also moving tomorrow. Um, And so, you know, a lot going on personally. But one of the reasons why I enjoy so much participating in these prayer marches is because if I'm going to be honest and truthful with you, and I think you'll be able to relate with me, prayer is not the easiest thing to do, (laughs) especially in New York, especially when you have so much to do and you feel so busy and uh, there's all these things, all these distractions, all these emails, whatever's going on. It's not easy to do, right, friends? But on these prayer marches, uh, it's kind of a way to kind of cut yourself off from all those distractions. And your mission, you're devoting yourself exclusively to just praying and worship. And, you know, after a while, what ends up happening to your heart after doing that for so long consecutively is prayer and worship becomes a delight. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I don't know if you can imagine that uh, because, like I said, prayer, I think for the most part, uh, is a struggle for many of us, and uh, sometimes we kind of have to will ourselves and do it as a duty. But there is a point, I think, where prayer becomes delight and you really experience a transformation of heart. And uh, that's when I know God has really touched my heart and touched my heart in a very profound way from within. The Holy Spirit says God's going to do that for us. There is this objective reality of the gospel, and if you are a Christian believer, that I trust you understand, uh, at least from an intellectual perspective. But there is also a promise that God is going to transform our hearts from within. And one day, maybe in this life, maybe in the, the life to come, that subjective reality is going to match up with that objective reality, and we will delight in living for the glory of our Lord. But when we get to taste it here on earth, that's life-giving, friends. That's life-giving. Uh, I think New York. Uh, I think New York sucks the life out of most people. Most of you here uh, sucks the life out of you. You work so hard <laughs> uh, because you work hard. I think people play hard too. So, um, uh, and that's not a bad thing. Um, if you feel like on empty in terms of life, in terms of your spirits. Uh, I don't think it's, you're going to find it ultimately or necessarily in a vacation. Although, again, not a bad thing. You, you all should go on vacation. Um, but at the end of the day, you find life in the promises of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit takes that gospel truth that is so true and boom, plants it into our hearts. That's why we worship and pray. That's why we can't forsake these spiritual disciplines. And when we experience that, then we have life and we feel life. Let's pray.